returned from Florida. We're glad to have them home. But Tyler is heading into a very heavy semester of school. And uh, we need to be supporting this couple in prayer as he heads toward graduation in May. But he's got a, a tough few months ahead of him and we want to be praying for him. So please join me as often as God brings them to mind. Let's be praying for them in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks again to our church family for the way in which you supported the Fosters yesterday. We just appreciate it so much, the effort many of you made, and uh, Glory and your team, a phenomenal job in the kitchen yesterday and providing some of the refreshments following the service. Paul Gaylord lives in Cascade Mountains of Oregon. In 2014, his cat Charlie went missing in the wilderness for several days. When Charlie finally returned, Paul found him lying on the back porch. The cat's face was swollen and he had trouble breathing. Paul could tell that he was choking. And I, like, I gotta confess, I don't get this when it comes to a cat, but, (laughs) but the, but the cat was choking, so he opened the cat's mouth and could see that a dead, rotting mouse was lodged in its throat. Of course, he went to remove it, and the cat reacted by biting down on his hand and breaking the skin. Well, Paul saved Charlie's life, but the victory was only temporary because the cat was clearly very sick. Two days later, Paul began to feel flu-like symptoms at work. His skin turned gray, and the glands under his arms were swollen to the size of lemons. He was rushed to the hospital and diagnosed with bubonic plague. His lungs collapsed and his heart stopped. He was in a coma for nearly a month. He eventually pulled through, but the good deed of saving his cat exposed him to one of the deadliest illnesses known to mankind. Unbelievable. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we find a record of what has been often referred to as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 5 through 7, it's really a sermon manuscript or Or maybe these are the notes that Matthew jotted down while Jesus was preaching. Regardless, verse 1 reads, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment. Notice verse beginning at verse 14. Matthew chapter 5 verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I wish that were true. I mean... The reality is, instead of glorifying our Father in heaven, sometimes 
they bite down on our hand. And we end up with something like the bubonic plague. There will be times when when letting our light shine before men will prove that old adage to be true. No good deed goes unpunished. So people walking in darkness need light, but they don't always appreciate the light that they need. Isn't that exactly what the Apostle John was referring to in that prologue to his account of the life and ministry of Jesus? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We need to be prepared. And I don't want any of us to be caught by surprise when our light, those practical expressions of the gospel, are not comprehended or appreciated. Hopefully, people are polite. But the reality is we live in a world that is less and less tolerant of our Christian faith. Some people do not want to be exposed to or even hear the light of the gospel that they so desperately need. In John chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, we will see a living example unfolding before our very eyes of Jesus encountering a people, a people who are walking in the darkness, who need the light, but do not comprehend or appreciate the light that they so desperately need. This saga will unfold in four scenes. The opportunity, the deed, the critique, and the backlash. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's Word. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, 
He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while he was, while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You may be seated. Father, this is your word. It claims to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. And so we come humbly this morning, believing that this is where our transformation begins. Use this episode taken from the life of Jesus to prepare us to be lights in an increasingly dark culture. May it provide courage and strength as we strive to be faithful ambassadors for Christ. Keep us from fear and discouragement. Enable us to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Father, I come not with superiority of speech or wisdom, but with a desire to obey and teach what you you have revealed about yourself, your plans, and your purposes. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. By the power of your spirit and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. In verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 5, we see the opportunity. Jesus, on a return trip to Jerusalem, encountered a multitude of sick people at the pool called Bethesda. We're told that his return to Jerusalem was precipitated by a feast of the Jews in verse 1. That explains why he was in Jerusalem again. Interestingly, he appears to be alone. At least, John doesn't mention any disciples accompanying him on this particular trip. Which feast? We're not told, and it doesn't really matter. The particular feast has no bearing whatsoever on the story. The Sheep Gate, according to Nehemiah chapter 3, was a part of the wall that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. It was located in the northeast part of the city, just north of the temple, got its name because of the sheep used in sacrifice were brought into the city through that gate. The pool, or pools, excavations have revealed that 
Actually, there were two pools located south and north of one another. They were surrounded by colonnades on all four sides and then down through the middle that would provide shade from the harsh Mediterranean sun. These colonnades were roofs supported by pillars that ran, like I said, all around the pools. There are a variety of spellings for the name of the pools, but the most common and the one that appears to be correct is the pools of Bethsaida. I keep wanting to say Bethsaida, but it Bethesda. And it means house of outpouring or perhaps even house of mercy. Now, I want you to try to imagine, if you will, a multitude. A multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, stacked up around these two pools. How big is a multitude? NIV translates it, a great number. The New Living Translation reads, crowds, plural, Not a crowd, crowds, plural, of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. Recently, I've had a few opportunities to visit a patient at the rehabilitation area of Parkwood Institute in London, Ontario. This is a hospital where they work with people who have sustained brain injuries, amputees, stroke victims, spinal cord injuries. I think you get the picture. And folks, I'm, I'm speaking of someone who is coming from outside the healthcare profession when I say that as I visit this patient, let me just say that as I walk down those halls, It's not a pretty sight. And it's not just a few patients that are trying to learn how to cope with their new reality and these broken bodies. For some, it's the result of disease. For others, it was an accident. Wrong place, wrong time. For still others, it may be the consequences of a culmination of poor choices. But here they are, doing what they can to learn to live, actually to cope with their newly imposed limitations. That's what Jesus was witnessing as he approached the pool of Bethesda. A multitude of people with broken bodies. And really, we're probably not all that surprised by that because we live in a world that is broken. We have been exposed in varying degrees to the inescapable pain, the suffering, the sickness, and even the death that this, well, life in this world 
offers. You see, that old hymn really only tells half the story. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. The beginning of the rest of the story is found in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's clear directive, because of that one act of disobedience, the serpent, Adam and Eve, bore the consequences of their choice. And not just them, but all of humanity and even the physical creation. We now live in a less than perfect world full of multitudes of less than perfect people who are trying to cope with a less, with a lifetime of less than perfect circumstances. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 8. Beginning at verse 19, we find Paul's description of this world in which we now live. Actually, follow along in your translation, beginning at verse 19 of Romans chapter 8, and allow me to read it in the New Living Translation. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait eagerly, hoping for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised us. But until then, we groan along with all creation. And in that context, we need to be careful. I'm not sure when I first heard it, but I've never forgotten it. A need does not necessarily constitute a call. Do you understand what that means? Just because there is a need does not mean that you and I are the persons who are obligated to fulfill that need. If we are not careful, human need can overwhelm us. In Mark chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus said, For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. He's speaking to his disciples. And the implications of that verse are that Timing must be a consideration. Set priorities. Know your limitations. Fight that God complex where we think that it all depends 
on us. Learn to deal with false guilt and for your own well-being. Say no. I'm sorry. I just can't. There are those times. Before we leave this section, let me just comment in passing on verses 3 and 4. The end of verse 3. You'll notice that on many of our Bibles it's sectioned off or there's an indication that, that these words are a late addition. And so what that means is they were not in the Apostle John's original writing. Look down at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. See that when the water is stirred up? So a scribe decided to help us understand what this sick man was referring to. Apparently there was a superstition that had developed around these pools that when the water rippled, that was a time that an angel had come and and stirred the water and the first one in would get healed. That was the superstition around there. And so eventually, that made its way into the manuscripts of the Bible. But it was not part of John's original writing. And so the earliest that phrase, the end of verse 3 and verse 4, show up. The earliest manuscript is in A.D. 400. Remember, this book was written in A.D. 90. And so what happened was it was in, it was inserted into the scripture, copied down through the years. And then we more recently have found earlier manuscripts of John's writings. And that phrase is not there. I hope that's helpful. And it should renew our confidence in the scriptures that these are God's words and that we can understand and we can discern which is part of the original and which is not. In terms of the water itself and the healing powers of the water, you need to come out to watch for Saskatchewan. And I would suggest you do that, not, well, maybe wait till July, August to head out to Saskatchewan. But there's a, in Watford is on the shores of Lake Manitou. And this lake has been referred to as the uh, Sea of Galilee, or the Dead Sea of Canada. And apparently, there are minerals in the water of Lake Manitou that heal our bodies. I don't know. I've never been there. But there's a huge resort, and they come by the busloads to bathe in the waters of Lake Manitou. And so that's what's happening here. These ripples on the water were probably the result of uh, spring-fed um, streams that flowed under the the pools and would bubble up once and again once in a while and uh, cause ripples. Anyway, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. First, we have the opportunity, and in verses 6 through 9, we have the deed. Let's look at those verses in John chapter 5. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Jesus healed the man who had been ill for 38 years by saying to him, Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Now, I don't know about you, but my imagination begins to run wild here as I try to envision this scene. Jesus is standing in the midst of a a multitude of invalids, people with broken bodies. His attention is drawn to one man who he knew had been there a long time. Perhaps it was the same kind of knowledge that Jesus had displayed earlier in John chapter 1 or John chapter 2 when he knew what was in man and would not entrust himself to him, remember? Or maybe it was like the time that he told that Samaritan woman back in in chapter 3 that all the things that she had done in her life. Verse 29. Somehow Jesus knew. And for, and for someone who knew what he knew, and then to ask the question that he asked, do you want to get well? What is that all about? Have you noticed that Jesus is not in the habit of imposing his solutions on people who are not interested in what he has to offer? You notice that? One of the verses I committed to memory early in my Christian life pictures Jesus standing at a door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20 And then there's that story in Mark chapter 10 of the rich young ruler who had approached Jesus asking how he could inherit eternal life. Verse 21 reads, Looking at the man, Jesus felt a genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done. He told him, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. And Jesus let him walk. There were no concessions, no renegotiation, no compromises. And I think if I was to paint this picture, Jesus would have a tear in his eye because he felt genuine love for him. But he let him walk away. Jesus is not a door smasher or a party crasher. 
you wish to get well? Here in John chapter 5, the sick man wasn't agitated. It certainly doesn't appear to be by what we might say was a stupid question. In fact, he responds respectfully to Jesus. He offers proof of his desire, but was incapable of taking advantage of it. He had a lack of means. He had the desire, but he couldn't get to the water. His physical and relational limitations prevented him from participating in this healing lottery. It was impossible for him to be the first into the water. But it was the words of Jesus himself that performed a good deed for this man. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And that one man in a multitude of sick, blind, lame, and withered people was healed. Why him? Why you? Why me? This is one of those times where we just stand in wonder. And we're witnessing a very public display of a sovereign act of selection. God being God. Think about it. Why Abraham? Why Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Why Jacob over Esau? Why on earth the Apostle Paul of all people? For my knowledge, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. And that's the best we can offer. God can choose who he will, and he is not answerable to you or to me or to anyone else who may challenge his choices. He is God, almighty, creator and ruler of both heaven and earth. Notice after 38 years, the healing is immediate. He picked up his pallet and began to walk. Again, my imagination. First of all, it's an unbelievable miracle. But I wonder if his celebration was somewhat muted. The presence of his comrades. Hard as that would be. But what about the, the ones who were lying right beside him? Excuse me, as you start to step over them? It's hard to imagine as he stepped over them to begin a brand new life. An amazing miracle. A good deed, indeed. Surely this kind of 
good deed can glorify God. We read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 earlier, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And I have to admit that Jesus is setting the bar rather high when it comes to good works. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter instructs us, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Good deeds can glorify God. Do good deeds. The Apostle Paul offered these words of advice to believers. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. We've considered the opportunity, the deed, and now the critique. Let's look at the second part of verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Hmm. The Jews interrogated the man who had been healed for carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. Notice that second half of verse 9. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. That's the key to understanding John's purpose for including this miracle. Trust me, Jesus knew exactly what day of the week it was. And he said to that sick man, pick up your pallet and walk. For the, for, through the first four chapters of the Gospel of John, we've seen the Jews become more and more aware of Jesus' ministry. And I would say that there was a curiosity there. Because remember Nicodemus? He was introduced to us back in John chapter 3 as the ruler of the Jews. And he was the one who came to Jesus in John chapter 3. Additionally, the Jews in his own home province had welcomed him as this great miracle worker. But here in chapter 5, things are going to take a turn for the worse. And Jesus knew that he was treading on sacred ground when he challenged them on the Sabbath. All we have to do is turn to the book of Exodus and, and read through the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he goes on. And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But let me say that he is refusing to accept the extrapolations 
of these self-appointed guardians of Judaism. Was going to have nothing to do with it. Their interpretations and applications of the law had risen to the point where they were considered to be as binding as the law itself. To carry something on the Sabbath was considered a capital offense, punishable by stoning. So we may not want to be too quick to to judge this healed man because he was facing, facing the possibility of a death sentence. Who cares that the man had been released after a 38-year illness that confined him to the pallet that he was now carrying? These Jews certainly did not. It's just another example of man's love for darkness. Granted, it was a love for darkness showcased in a well-defined, culturally accepted form of religious legalism. No one would cons- no one would even consider to challenge their zeal or their sincerity, but they were sincerely wrong. And in all their zeal to be right, they missed the arrival of the very one who they had been waiting for generations to arrive, their Messiah. And how sad is that? The Apostle Paul, in reference to Israel's past mistakes, informed the believers in Corinth. Now these things happened as examples for us, for you and I. We need to learn from this bad examples presented by these Jews. Folks, we need to remain teachable continually. As much as we are able, we need to be exposed to the transforming influence of the contents of this book. Firmly rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, Paul tells the believers at Colossae. We need to be like the Bereans. They were of noble character, For they received the message with great eagerness, examined the scriptures every day to see if what George was saying was true or whoever else is teaching you the word of God. Remember, the mind is like a parachute. It works best when it's open. And by open, I mean that we remain teachable. Let this little light shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. The opportunity the deed, and now the, the critique, and now the backlash. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. It appears that, at least it seems to be suggesting, that this man's 38-year illness perhaps had been caused by, by sin in the man's life. Who knows? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. It's interesting that Jesus pursued the man and found him and told him, don't use this second chance on life. Use it to put distance between yourself and sin. It's not like the 
the lady who was, according to John chapter 8, who was caught in adultery. And Jesus just told her, go and sin no more. No, he, he goes that distance and tells this man not just to go and sin no more, but don't allow something worse to happen to you. There's emphasis there. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 puts it this way. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity to the flesh. And I just find it astonishing how he responds. It's hard to believe. He becomes an informer and runs back to his Jewish interrogators and tells them that it was Jesus who told them to pick up his pallet and walk on the Sabbath. Perhaps he was seeking their approval or ensuring his own safety. Clearly, he wasn't interested at all in protecting the one who had made him whole. The fear of man, the desire to have their approval, is something that you and I can relate to. It's a powerful motivator. And it's a battle that we need to fight every day of our lives. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 reads, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. It's a proverb. It's a contrast. It's not an either-or or a both-and. We can't have it both ways. Either you fear man or you choose to trust God. And Jesus' recommendation, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But what about those Jews? It's even harder to believe. Notice verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, like telling a, a man to pick up his pallet and walk. Maybe, maybe if he had left the pallet. This is the beginning of relational tensions that would culminate with a crucifixion on a hill just outside the city gates of Jerusalem called Golgotha. People oppose the gospel because of the influence of their own depravity, Satan, and an insatiable appetite for sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 reads, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. Our own depravity. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Stay alert. Watch out. Your great enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Satan, he's a real adversary. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many who can whose conduct show they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite, and they brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Our appetite. 
Let me state the obvious. The demonstration, proclamation, and celebration of the gospel invites opposition to the gospel. And sometimes it will be directed at us. We need to be tenacious. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 reads, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So there you have it. The opportunity, the deed, the critique, and the backlash. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. And next week, we'll look at Jesus' astonishing claim in response to this persecution. It was like throwing gasoline on the opposition's fire. Trust me, things are about to heat up in a major way. Let's pray. Father, your grace is sufficient regardless of our circumstances. And it is so undeserved. But thank you for withholding what we deserve and giving us what we don't. Forgive us for those times when we look to others in fear or for some kind of approval rather than trusting you. Clearly, this story exposes the possibility of facing opposition, even as we attempt to live our lives in ways that please you and improve the lives of others around us. But help us to be strong and courageous. May our words and our deeds become lights that shine in the darkness. Indeed, individually and collectively, enable us to let this little light shine. Shine, shine, so that the world may know that you sent Jesus and that you love them. And Father, speaking of love, we want to pray for our brother and shepherd, Wayne, and his family this morning. Continue to comfort them and use us in that regard. May we say and do appropriate things at just the right time. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.